Welcome to Bottom Line's Top Dollars. A podcast about all the money things you suspect might be ruining your life. I'm Laura Boo, recording from the city of Charlottetown, which is on the island of Abegwick, unceded Mi'kmaq land, otherwise known as Prince Edward Island, Canada. And I'm Hadassadanian, newly in Denver, Colorado, USA, which is on Oot and Arapaho land. Together, we are the ladies who crunch, longtime friends, artists, and researchers who have both somehow made careers for themselves in finance. And good people, today we close out season two by answering listener mail that you have sent us over the last couple months. Today, picking up a few questions related to having a small business. So... Oh yeah, we got such we got so many so many wonderful beautiful questions. I just want to thank everybody and we keep them all. Some of them actually I think will come back in season 3 because they're related to episodes that we're planning, but we've picked two questions that we felt were asking similar things related to running your own business and so we thought they'd make a great episode together. So the first question is from Ben love this question. And Ben is a friend. So hi, Ben. Hi, Ben. The the question says, hi, you two. Um, I love your show so much. And I, that is Ben's amount of O's in that. So just so that we all know (laughs) And (laughs) to continue. Um, I really uh, leaned into becoming more financially literate and have gotten over a lot of shame and sellout guilt since listening to your amazing content. So thank you. I have a question that I've been meaning to ask an accountant or a tax lawyer for quite some time, so here I am. I have a small side hustle slash new hobby that generates a few hundred dollars every four months or so. I do not have a business license, nor am I charging or paying tax on the product I'm selling. And in brackets, it says gourmet mushrooms, which I am now saying sounds delicious. <laughs> I am not sure how far I'll go with this new hobby of mine, as it doesn't generate much of a return after I've accounted for overhead as of now. My question is, at what point should I get a business license? Am I being sketched by not charging tax and declaring the little sales I make? Help. I hate capitalism but I also don't want to screw myself by breaking the law. Classic. Thanks for your advice. Yours truly, Ben. <laughs> oh, love it. Classic. Um, so so there's, we're going to go deep into some details on how to actually answer this question, but we wanted to start with like a high level sort of where to put yourself on the stress scale if you're asking this kind of question. And so essentially there's very different types of businesses. And so if you are a solo service provider making in the U S you don't even have to declare or pay taxes on less than $600 in earnings. And if you're a solo service provider, even if you're making more than that taxable amount, but you don't have employees, you don't sell products, you don't have a physical location, you don't have high revenue. A lot of what we're about to talk to in the next few minutes might be interesting for you, but might not apply to you. But for those of you who are considering having employees or selling products like Ben, or have a physical location or are imagining or actually having high revenue, and in Canada, that's over 30K, in the US, it's over 100K, where some of these things start to trigger, then these details might be really of interest to you. And the other reason that I think this is a super interesting topic to dig into, even if you are that like solo service provider, is that 
at the end of the day, number one, avoiding questions doesn't actually make allow you to like avoid liability. That's that's not how it works. Even though I know when we dislike the government, we would just prefer to avoid it all. It's good, Ben, that you are facing this head on. Good job. But even better, like legitimizing and figuring out your business's answer to these questions, it enables you to claim the money and kind of start this legitimizing process, decreases fear and stress that you might have, but also puts you in a position to say, if I wanted to expand this business, I'm ready. You know, so with that, Laura, I know you had a couple caveats that were also important. Yes. So it's so interesting, like the summary of this kind of question is really fundamentally like, am I breaking the law <laughs> by making this money? Like, is what I'm doing, am I breaking the laws or something that I, sh- some way I should be interacting with the government that I'm not currently interacting with the government? And, you know, the answer to that question really depends on most fundamental, it depends on a bunch of things, but I can put them into two big buckets. One is where you live and what your business is, like what your business is, how big it is. And the answer, you know, because it, it, you know, this podcast goes out into the whole world, we're going to give a super high level general answer, you know, and kind of give a couple of specifications for when something applies differently in Canada or the US. But if anything we're talking about kind of, you know, makes you have a little bit of like a ting, like a spidey sense tingling or some kind of worries, then really take that as a sign that you should consult a lawyer who has been called to the bar in the jurisdiction where your business operates and or consult a CPA registered in your jurisdiction, meaning that you, you know, the answers really depend on where you live. And in my experience um, as a business owner and consulting with business owners, it's often easier to get with a CPA because CPAs tend to have this like catch all knowledge, especially if you are like a sole proprietor, just one person working for yourself or a super small business. So start with a CPA, they can give you information and then tell you if you actually need to like go all the way to a lawyer. Um, God bless lawyers. You know, I find that sometimes people will ask me questions and I'll be like, And I'll be like, oh, yeah, they'll often say, who do I even talk to? And I'm like, well, for this part, you talk to me. And my answer is this. Uh, But for this part, you actually do need to consult a lawyer. And for this part, you can just Google it. Like (laughs) I love CPAs. CPAs are beautiful. Laura, Laura Boo, your knowledge is valuable and beautiful. Thank you. (laughs) But also, that being said, make sure that you pick a CPA who has the right expertise. And for a lot of this, you're going to want to talk to a tax professional. So find somebody who, you know, who does small business taxes, like talk, talk to one of your friends who has their own business and say, Hey, who does your taxes? I want to have a little meeting with them, pay for that meeting, get your questions answered, do what the person says and keep it moving. Yeah. And for some of the other things, Google. Yeah. So this is where we're going to, this is where we're going to start. So We kind of separated this into a few buckets, and we call these the ways that you may have to interact with the government if you run a business. And the first one we're starting with is the one that pretty much absolutely everybody, no matter what your business is, this is the most basic and universal, and it is you have to pay income taxes on the money you earn, point final. Like whether you're an employee or you own your own business, you have to pay taxes, income taxes on the money you earn. and how you pay those taxes depends on how you structure your business. And in general, and this is, these are, you know, four big general categories that apply in both Canada and the U.S. 
there are kind of four ways you can structure your business. You can be self-employed or what we call have a sole proprietorship. You can structure your business as a partnership. You can structure it as a corporation or you can structure it as a cooperative. Those are the four big buckets. And I will say, if you are self-employed in a sole proprietorship, you don't have to do anything. Exactly. You like nothing, no paperwork required. If you are making out there on those streets making money, you are self-employed and a sole proprietor. Exactly. So Ben sounds like they are a sole proprietor. In essence, it's like if you are if you're out there right now doing something, making money on your own, like you don't have a boss and you're making money for yourself and you have not registered or talked to the government or signed a paper or done anything, then by default, you are self-employed and a sole proprietor. And you can, like I could tomorrow declare myself a a self-employed person who, you know, washes windows and go out and start washing windows. I don't have to register with the government kind of thing, right? This is sole proprietorship. And if that's the case, then, you know, you don't have to do anything. You just have to file a personal tax return. The same tax return you have filed before as an employee, you're just putting the income you earn on a different line. It's an additional part of the tax return that you also fill out. Exactly. The first time you do it, if you're very nervous about it, pay a professional to help you file and you'll get you'll get used to how you do it. But it's the same tax return that everyone does if you're self-employed or have a sole proprietorship. Even if you employ other people, that's still a sole proprietorship. You just do a personal tax return. Partnership is if you decide to enter into a business with other people and you decide that you're going to be partners. There are certain kinds of businesses that have to be partnerships, like law firms have to be partnerships. Accounting firms are partnerships, at least in Canada. And the partnerships just means that you, it's kind of a way of saying a bunch of sole proprietors who link together. And in Canada, at least, you're still just doing a personal tax return. You don't have, the partnership doesn't do a tax return. Each of the partners just does an individual tax return. Fascinating. Different. It's different in the U.S. In the U.S., if you register a partnership, that partnership fills out its own business tax return. However, if you work for yourself and you have a LLC, you don't. It, I think I think that's what kind of like partnership is like in Canada. There's also um, because it's just on your personal tax return. If you have an LLC with other people, one to many, it, that is its own entity and it it fills out its own business return. But you still get information like a little sheet of paper that you then go do your personal tax return. It says how much money you made. So all of this is really like some entity has to say, hey, government, I made this money. I also spent some other money to make this money. And that is, whether it's your personal return or like through a business, you're going to have to say, what's up, government? I made money. I spent money. Now you know. Yeah. And in Canada, you have to do that if you are a corporation. So that's the third one is this bucket of registering as a corporation. People always wonder what's the difference between a partner and a corporation. And often people, when they're in a corporation, say, oh, well, my business partner. And so they're confused by that. But at least in Canada, partnership is like a really specific kind of entity. And to be honest, most people who enter into partnerships, they're professionals like lawyers and accountants who cannot, who are blocked from incorporating. You're not allowed to you know, run a, a public accounting firm as like a full, full, full corporation because of 
because you're professionals and you have to take on liability for your professional work. And that's the difference with a corporation. A corporation, this is where you register your corporation with the government. You know, you go in and you, you know, you file a bunch of papers and you're in essence creating an outside entity. You're like, you know, when it's a sole proprietorship, you're saying, you know, I do this thing and I own it. It's all me. I'm personally liable for everything. It's fully connecting the business to yourself, meaning that if it goes bankrupt, you could lose your house, right? But a corporation is this this legal vehicle where you actually create what is considered a legal entity and that entity becomes the business. And that involves some expensive paperwork and every single year it involves having to file a corporate tax return for that entity. And then in addition to that, you will still have to file your personal tax return where you report your own salary and dividends that that corporation pays to you as an employee and or owner of that corporation. So this is like way super in the future of the mushroom business right now. Yes. Maybe not there. Exactly. Incorporating is really, really, is not really, really, it is expensive, but some people think, oh, the only time you would incorporate is if you had like a a huge business and a ton of employees. And often that's true. But sometimes it's not. And I'll give you a really simple example of when it wouldn't be. If the type of business that you are running right now as a sole proprietor is the kind of business where you would have very irregular earnings, where you work on a thing for months or especially years and then sell it, and then the next year you'll make, you know what I mean? Something like that. And who the people who I've worked with where this is the situation are mostly artists who are either writing a book or a screenplay or making a TV show or making a movie. And they will work on that project for over a year and then they will sell it and they will have a windfall. And so when you look at their taxation in one year, they'll have almost no income. And then in a year, suddenly they'll have a couple hundred thousand dollars of income. And then the next year, they'll go back to making almost nothing. And the problem with that is if you are just a sole proprietor, then in the year when you make $20,000, you're paying almost no taxes. And in the year where you sell the thing and make $250,000, you are taxed in the highest possible tax bracket and you lose a ton of it. And then the next year, you make almost nothing again, when in reality, You were working on that project for several years. If that's the kind of world that you're in, if you're an artist who's working at that level where you might have a year where you sell a big project, then incorporating is actually really smart for you because you will actually get taxed less because you can make the earnings inside the corporation and then pay yourself out from that windfall money over a couple years. So, you know... It's 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 not impossible that a tiny individual sole proprietor might actually be better off as an incorporated person. Totally. And in the US, I see people do corporate, like incorporate as individuals for that purpose. And also for the purpose of you might be, if you're like a sole proprietor, and like I see people who are like, you know, designers, facilitators, um, software developers, people who are making kind of like 100K plus annual like revenue earnings from their businesses 
can also, if you incorporate in the in the the business entity is what gets the money, and you pay yourself um, using a payroll. Not only can you look really good on paper if you want to do something later, like be able to qualify for a mortgage, because now you've got this like W two paycheck coming at you, and you also can like basically it's tax advantageous because if you were just earning all that money as a sole proprietor, yeah, you would get taxed at the highest tax bracket. And you would also in the US pay something called self-employment tax, which is a 15% tax on all revenue that you make when you're self-employed. And if the money goes to a corporation, then that self-employment tax doesn't apply because it's not Mm -hmm. a sole person who's making the money. So there are reasons that you might incorporate but you don't have to be incorporated no. is the point to like, you're not breaking the law by just being like somebody grows mushrooms and sells them. <laughs> Got it. And the, the key takeaways, right? Yes. You can go like way deep into this, but key takeaways, if you're out there on these streets, making money, keep receipts of what it is you had to spend and keep records of your earnings. And when you're early up in your business, that could be as simple as like a written down record of like, I was at the farmer's market and I made 50 bucks and the next week I made 45 bucks or whatever. Um, it might be an Excel spreadsheet. It might be like a, you know, deeper software if you're doing digital sales or whatever, but receipts of what you had to spend records of your earnings so that you can fill out those tax forms because yeah. no matter how you're set up, you're going to be doing taxes. Exactly. And that's the information that you report on the taxes is the only two numbers that you really need to know is how much revenue did you make, i.e. how much sales did you make, how much money did you bring in, and then what did you spend? What were your expenses? So really it's like whether that's as simple as a pad of paper where you write down everything that you sold as you go and a box of receipts or you go full out and get like QuickBooks online and start bookkeeping, as long as you have records of it, whether you're filing a personal tax return as a sole proprietor or you decide to incorporate and go the lengths if you think it's worth it, then like that's really all you need. So this is the number one place that you have to be compliant with the government no matter what your business is, number one income tax. And I also want, yes, you have to be compliant with the government here, but I also want to like level set because a lot of people will come to me, you know, and we'll do like, we'll be stressed about taxes. And so, yes, you need to be compliant. And, you know, in the U.S., if you're making less than 40 grand a year, there is a less than half a percent chance that the government is going to actually really, really read your taxes and say, hey, what's that? However, if you're making more than $200,000 a year, there's a one in four chance that the government is going to really read through your taxes and say, hey, what's that thing there? And so, you know, if you're just starting out with your mushroom business, it's not that there's a 0% chance of you getting audited, just the government reading your taxes and asking you questions, but it's a really, really, really low chance. However, for those of you who are business owners who are like, I'm starting my business, but I'm hoping and trying and planning to grow it, it's uh, it's good to Laura's point to, to start that financial hygiene now of like keeping track of, again, what you spend, what you earn. So that if and when you do get to that high revenue place, you're already in, you've got your systems and your processes in place for when you actually really do need to worry about it. So I just want to level set with y'all. Don't, don't stress more than you need to stress about the government. So many people come at me and they're like, oh my God, I'm doing a thing that touches the government. Like, like that, what can feel like a lot of money to some of us is, is, is not actually really not a big deal. It's, it's, it's not a big deal. 
it's not a big deal. But also the other the other piece about and what you were saying kind of made me think of this is Ben is also talking about like it being a side hustle, right? So if you're somebody who you have a job and you're getting a, you know, T4 and the government, you know, if you if you work for an employer, you know, the employer files with the government saying what they paid you. And so then the government is expecting you to file a tax return with what that says. But if then you make a little money on the side, the government actually has no idea that you made that money unless you tell them, which a lot of people then are extremely tempted to then not tell the government that they made that money. And to be honest, the government, it would be very difficult for the government to know that you made that money unless, and these are the risks, because I know it's very tempting for people to be like, I'm just not going to report this and I'm not going to pay tax on it, but I'm going to tell you the risks. Number one, if you issue receipts to people and anybody else then basically uses that as a business expense and they get audited and they see your name on a receipt. It's unlikely, but it is possible that they'll be like, huh, who is this person? Because when they audit the others, they will they will look at your receipt. And in trying to find out whether it's a legitimate receipt or if that person is lying to them and made you up, they are going to research you. If you're doing something where you are potentially actually think, you know, doing this side hustle with the goal of it eventually becoming your main hustle, if you're actually losing money at the beginning it's important, it's advantageous for you to file taxes because if you have business losses, you can actually roll that forward and it'll diminish the amount of tax you have to pay. You can roll it forward into the future with those losses and then those losses become a valuable tool for diminishing your taxes in the future. So even if you're losing money, file your taxes. You can lose money in the US two out of any five years on a particular business Um, activity. Just file it because losses actually will be helpful to you in the future, shockingly. And lastly, you need to weigh the impact. It is a small chance that you would get caught, but you need to ask yourself, is what getting caught is worth the amount of taxes I will have to pay, especially if what you're earning is very small? If you have this side hustle where you're making like a couple thousand dollars a year, the amount of taxes you're going to pay on that, because you can say, you know what, I sold a couple thousand dollars of mushrooms and it cost me a couple hundred dollars to make them. So really my income is only like five, six hundred dollars. The amount of tax you're going to pay on that is minuscule. But if you got caught lying, the amount that you're going to have to pay then is going to be really not worth it. You know, uh, when I worked as a tutor, people would always encourage me not to report my tutoring income, but I always reported it 100%. And people thought that was ridiculous. And then I told people, if I get caught cheating on my taxes, I lose my CPA title. And the amount of taxes that I would save is not anywhere worth losing the seven years of work I did to get this title. So I report... Absolutely, I hide nothing because it's not worth it for me to save a couple hundred dollars. I'm I'm of the same opinion, and my my thought has always been like I report everything. Like if I'm making money, I report that money. And to me, 
some of it is honestly like working class hustle where I'm just like, I want that money to be on the books because then I can do whatever I want with that money. I can put it in the bank. I can invest it. I can whatever, right? I'm not like wasting my precious mental energy trying to figure out how to get around this and get around that. I'm like, no, I report the money. I put it in the bank. I don't have to think about it. I pay the taxes and I keep it moving. And I think to me, that's like the other thing that I think is worth just kind of framing up in here. You know, it can feel, it can feel really scary to be like, Oh my God, am I like breaking the law with the government? But like, no one is going to jail for not reporting a couple hundred bucks of sales. Absolutely not. You would get fines. Yeah. You would like, get fines or something like that. They would they would financially slap you on the wrist. Like you'd have to pay the tax and then you'd have to pay a fine. And then the government also is like, this person is a liar and they will pay more attention to your tax returns in the future. So it's just, you know, like I'm like, I'm such a fan. I'm like, dot your like I's and cross your T's and keep it moving because there's so many other things to think about, like other things you might have to do if you were to have a business, other ways you might interact with the government. So let's go, let's go let's in. Move on to, let's move on to sales taxes, which is, you know, income tax is one tax. The next is sales tax. You might wonder if you are selling something, whether it's a good or a service, whether or not you need to charge sales tax. What sales tax is, is if you live in a place where the government says that every time there is a financial transaction, the government wants you to add a percentage onto that. And then, you know, you charge your, you know, you sell something for $10 and the tax is 5%. So, you know, you collect that 5% when you charge that person and then you give it to the government. In Canada, we have all over Canada, there is a federal sales tax called GST. And then some provinces have provincial sales tax, like in Quebec, they have QST. And then in some provinces, they have taken their GST and their provincial tax and rolled it together into what they call a harmonized sales tax or HST. In general, all over Canada, the trigger of whether or not you need to charge that sales tax is exactly the same. If your sales, not your income, your sales are greater than $30,000 in a single year or a single quarter, then you have 30 days to register for a sales tax number in Canada and start charging sales tax. So if in a single quarter, i.e. a three-month period, or over the course of your year of business, you sell more than $30,000 of mushrooms, then you then have to start, actually, since mushrooms are food, you never have to charge sales tax on them, but you have to, you have to charge, start, start, you have to register for a GST number or an HST number, depending on the province you live in, and you need to start charging taxes to your clients. And then you need to give that money that you took from your clients to the government, either on a quarterly basis or an annual basis. If you're a small person business charging, not making a lot of sales, usually it's annual. The bigger you get, they're going to make you report on a quarterly basis. It's not hard. It is slightly annoying. <laughs> and I'm going to say this right now, income taxes, you know, the government will be gentle with you sometimes with in income taxes. But in Canada, the government does not fucking play when it comes to sales taxes. They're right. very goddamn serious about it. Yes. <laughs> yes. No, I think the U.S. is 
is similar. And I know a lot less about like sales tax in the US than you know about it in Canada. But you know, it's it's the same. The buyer pays, the seller collects it and remits it to the state and federal government. And similarly in the US, we have our federal rules and our state level rules, but high level, you need to check for your own like lo- locality. That's just like, because every state is different. There's 50 of them and I cannot memorize all of them. So if you <laughs> live in New Hampshire, live free or die, zero taxes on anything. Right. And certainly, and if you live in New York state, New York state does not play about their taxes, not about their sales taxes, not about their income taxes. So you need to check like what your state's requirement are high level. What I learned was that it's like, if you are making less than a hundred K in revenue. And so for Laura talked about 30 K a quarter, 120 annually in the U S it's, if you're making less than a hundred K annually in revenue, you might not be required to pay sales tax, but I want you to double check that (laughs) because that is a hearty might. And same thing. Yeah. You collect it, you pay it and that's it. And you keep it moving. That's it. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. The big thing to remember is just, Google where you live to see which taxes you're responsible for and what your trigger is. And then if you trigger it, you, at least in Canada, you absolutely have to go and register for that. Usually you can just either register online. Nowadays, definitely you can just register for the number online and then you just start charging it on your invoices. It's just a percentage. And then you basically file it online. And just to be clear, the the trigger in Canada, I know it's confusing because I said $30,000 in a single year or a quarter. It's actually because then you said the $120,000 a year, it's $30,000 in a year or a quarter. And that's just a trigger of when you have to register. So uh, okay. if, in a, if in a whole year, you've made $30,000, then at the end of that year, you have 30 days to register. But if you start your business and within any single quarter, you hit the threshold of making $30,000 in that quarter, then you have 30 days to register. You have to register partway through the year. It's They basically are like, as soon as you get big enough to hit this threshold, you need to register right away because the government, they want that money. Right. They don't play. They're not playing. They don't play. And so, okay, so you're, you've got your business. You're like, look, it's my side hustle. I might grow it. I might not, um, pun intended. <laughs> What are the licensing requirements? So like, like what, where else might you interact with the government in terms of the type of business that you have? So licensing requirements depends really on the nature of your business and where you operate. And this is where you're going to have to do a bunch of Googling, both about the requirements on the municipal level, on the, in Canada provincial, in the U.S. state level, or the federal level. And really what you want to look at is there's a lot of ways in which they might make you have to register in some way. Now, to run a business just in general, you don't have to register at all. Like if I say I'm starting a business, there's no law that says every single business, no matter what it is, has to register with the government. That is not true at all. No, no, there's none of that. But you might have to get some kind of permission to do something that you need to do as part of your business. So for example, if it's a home business, so if you work at home and you're just doing your own little cottage thing, very often you're not required to do any kind of registering at all. But 
Some things that you might do at home would require registering. For example, some municipalities require that if you Airbnb a room in your apartment or uh, your entire apartment when you leave, that you need to actually have a license to do so. Or if you do some kind of food prep in your house, you might have to, you know, follow some kind of rules or get some kind of health and safety training. In some places, if you do that kind of food prep, you're actually not allowed to do it in your house. You have to do it in an industrial kitchen. So that those kinds of rules are usually really municipal. If you decide to run your business somewhere other than your home, that's when you're triggering a, like the potential to need more permission from some level of government. So like if you have an office or a storefront, you need to get a, a zoning permit to make sure that what you're doing in that space is allowed by your city. You might need to get permission for your signage or, you know, if you want to put out a sandwich board, that's considered public property. You might have to look into what you're allowed to do and whether or not you need permission to do it. Totally. And I think also zoning can kick in when it comes to like the place you live or the place you rent, like some homes are zoned residential and some are zoned residential commercial. And so there's certain types of things that you could do, even if you own the place or that you can't do, if you, even if you own the place, if you don't have commercial zoning. So yeah, if you're just like up on your computer doing your sole business, you're fine. If you're depending on your municipality and you're going to have to check, if you're like up in your backyard, you know, welding, you may or may not have like the commercial you know, welding for a business that you're selling, you may or may not like need a commercial yeah. zoning for that. If you're having people come through, you know, so again, yeah, the, com checking. the people coming to your house is the big thing. Like yep. if you like, God, everybody works from home now, right? Like if you're a graphic designer and you have a home office and you, but you're a graphic designer who works for themselves and send, you know, has a bunch of clients, your city doesn't give a shit. But if you are running a beauty salon in your living room, your municipality could very well care quite a bit about that because you're seeing people in your home and you need to make sure that you're allowed to do that. Now, the other thing is, depending on the other way that you might have to get permission to do what you do or some kind of, you know, license of some kind depends on what kind of services uh, you offer or what kind of items you sell. And that might be a license, a permit, or a title. So for example, uh, I have a title as a CPA, like I pay professional order dues. I can't go, like if I just wanted to be a bookkeeper, I could go out there and I can be a bookkeeper. Anybody who's willing to let me do the books for them, I could do that. But if I want to go out there and say I am a CPA and I'm offering CPA level services, I have to pay dues and I have to be registered. It's the same thing for plumbers, electricians, lawyers. You, you know, you have to register for that profession, even if you work for yourself. But there's other types of things. Like in Canada, if, you're, if your business is import-export, you would need licenses. Um, if you're doing building or construction, if you're doing something that involves manufacturing, processing, or selling food, there's health and safety concerns. If you're doing something that involves dangerous goods, disposing of certain kinds of waste or anything that affects, you know, that could impact the physical environment. There's, that's just not, that's not just municipal level. It often requires permission from the federal 
provincial and or federal government. So depending on what it is that you're doing, you might need special permission. So like, for example, in Canada, like pot now is legal, but not anybody can sell pot. (laughs) You have to have a, you know, you have to have permission from the government and, you know, this, it's the same thing now. Like, depending on what you do, you might want to just Google a bit and be like, hmm, is there regulations about selling mushrooms where I live? Right. Or like, are these mushrooms being grown in such a way as to like, you know, remove toxic chemicals from the ground? And actually, I'm not selling them for food. They're like cleaning the earth and they're like a toxic waste, right? Like you might just have to double check. So these are all reasonable questions. Your key takeaway might be like double check. But I also want your key takeaway to be like, don't be afraid to go in and do that checking because you're not going to get in trouble for things you're looking into. You, you know, could find yourself regretting not following up on things that you wondered about, like back to like, you know, LD's sort of like, do you have that spidey sense? I should find out more. Go ahead and find out more, right? Even if you find out you have to fill out a form. Okay. So you're going to fill out the form and then you're going to keep it moving and sell your mushrooms and live your life. I think we should soon move to our next question. Is there anything else, Laura, you want to add or? The only other things that I'd say is as your business gets bigger, there could be other questions to that you need you know, to, to answer, especially when you get to the level, if you start hiring people. So if you're at the point of your business having employees, then you have a whole other set of obligations and things you need to register for. And honestly, as your business grows, find a trusted lawyer, find a trusted CPA and every step that you get bigger, let those people help you. And as you hire people, hire people who can help you and the the only other thing that I'd mention, which is something that you do not have to do, but you might want to do, is if you think that your business is going to grow and you want to protect it and protect the name of your business and protect your brand, you can always voluntarily go in and register your business name so that you can protect that name and protect that brand. That's optional, but that's for you if you know, you think your shit has legs and you want to kind of corner that name and protect it for yourself in advance. Right. And there's a couple of different ways in the U.S. that you would do that. Like, and it, it's in some ways it's kind of convoluted, but each in in the U.S. you can set up your business by state. And so like you're, you, there's like a state registry and that's just who, what businesses are in that state. There's some, and kind of connected to that is what entities can get paid as what names. So like what, you know, who can actually collect money from other people? What, what are checks getting made out to? What are bank accounts named separately in the U S if you want to protect your brand that you're going to be registering a trademark, you're going to be registering the name of the business kind of separate from registering your business. So there's always, always things to look into and Ben, best of luck to you and your mushroom business. We're going to move on <laughs> to um, to Brenna, who had a really beautiful set of questions that we're going to take some time and dive into. So Brenna says, hello, thanks so much for the work you're doing and sharing. It means a lot to me hearing from people with similar backgrounds and morals talking about things I've been avoiding and the things I thought would never be important for me. I'm turning 40 next month. Holler, Brenna. And I'm really reckoning with the path I've set for myself. I'm no longer interested in living month to month, and I'd really love to own a home. 
I've built a small business over four years while working part-time on the side. I'm pretty confident it is ready to be scaled up, potentially earn me a living wage plus more, maybe hire one or two people. There's a barrier though for me or a mental block. It's difficult to turn the thing I love and am passionate about sharing into a thing that has to be commodified in order to survive financially. Womp womp capitalism. Right. The business of selling products and services can feel so gross, so not aligned with my politics, but I'm hoping to at least provide for myself and possibly others in a respectful and healthy way. The first part of my question is what advice would you give to someone setting up a business? What structures should be implemented to plan for the future? Medical, dental, RRSP, pension, life insurance, savings. Coming from a modest earning background and having never seriously considered my plans, uh, this is all new. For the first time, I'm taking my future seriously as I set up my own business. And the second part to the question relates to home buying. A number of my self-employed friends have had difficulty getting mortgages because of how they look on paper to the banks. Any advice or strategies for buying a home as a single sole prop? So Brenna, yes, we are going to go into this. We can answer parts of this specifically and we will, but I think like, I mean, a high level I want to talk about business models and I want to talk about making money, but I also, even before I get in there, I'm just like, Brenna, like your question speaks to me. (laughs) It like really speaks to my heart Um, because it's all the things to me that are so freaking difficult and complicated. I want to do something in the world that I, how'd you say it in a respectful and healthy way, provide for myself and others, like how authentic and awesome is that? And also you're up against the like, key question. Like I said, in capitalism, I don't, I don't, you don't want to find yourself in an extractive or negative relationship with something that you love and am passionate about. So of course you're worried about that because it can be hard to build a business and maintain that level of like love with a thing that you love. And you're also in a transition place in life where you're like, Hey, what about some of these things like savings or a home that I you would like to be able to build from doing something that you enjoy. So I just like you're, you have such a like powerful and common set of questions. So I'm really happy that we're able to dig into this. So Laura, any reflections on on these questions before we dive into the answer? I mean, number one, there's a few things where I, I found this question really beautiful, not only because I'm like, props to you for making it to 40, mm-hmm. for starting mm-hmm. your own business and for being in a place like, and I, I can feel that kind of anxiety where I think that as people who, you know, share this, you know, this kind of set of ethics or ideas that I keep calling anti-capitalism, um, <laughs> I think that we're also getting into a place where we're like, okay, yes, I agree slash disagree with a bunch of ways that the world works, but I still need to live and survive. And you're also on the brink of passing that on to potentially help others live and survive by getting to the place where you are an employer. And I think this is a barrier where we have reflection points where we're like, okay, if I have my own side hustle and it's just for me, I think I can manage my feelings about capitalism there. But what happens when I become the employer? What happens, you know, people have these anxieties with words like employer, landlord, these kinds of things where we have like boss, like these big things. So I very much feel you and I'm stoked on this question. And I think that uh, I'm stoked because I know Hadassah, you get lots of clients who want to talk about this. So let's start with 
I think you have a really good start to this. Let's go. Yeah, no, I, it's so to me, like high, high top. If I had to answer this question in one sentence, it would be in order to solve these problems that I'm hearing you bring in, the problems are, I want to be able to provide for myself and others. I want to be answering, you know, I want to be like dealing with some things that I've ignored. I like want to do something I like and still enjoy it. I want to see if it's possible to buy a home. You need to design a business model that pays you enough money. Like the business has to bring in money. And for myself, long time, like low income, long time, like not earning a lot of money or fucking with a lot of money, you might find yourself in a position where you have to imagine a business that makes more money than you have ever conceived of before. And that might actually be an amount of money that is the sustainable amount of money. And like getting over that like mental imagination, fear factor block can be really hard. So I just want to hold space for if it feels hard, that's because it's hard. <laughs> and the, the thing I'm going to suggest that you do is something that people find difficult because imagining making more money is actually one of the hardest things when you've never done it before based on the people that you know, the life that you've lived, the world that you're in, etc. But like you need to design a business model that pays you enough money so that you're not actually so that you don't end up as like the bad employer you didn't ever want to work for <laughs> and that you don't want to be to yourself or to other people, right? So it's like the exercise I give people on this one is it's it's like Think about it as like, you know, this year or like in the next couple months, maybe one year from now and maybe like two or three years from now. But think about how much money that you want to make, you know, what do you need to make in the next couple months? What do you want? What would be like pretty good, you know, for the year from now? And what would be like blows my mind kind of awesome amount of money to make? And you're going to think about it you're going to reverse engineer what you need to make in this business in order for your business to be sustainable for you. So you might hypothetically be like, okay, you know what? A mind blowing amount of money would be $5,000 in my bank account after everything each month. What do I have to do to walk backwards to get that? Well, you're like, I'm also have to pay for health insurance. I also want to put money into a retirement account. I also have business expenses of running my business. I also have taxes to pay on the revenue that has come in. So you might kind of list all of that out and sketch it on the back of a napkin and get to, okay, well, if I want to make 5,000 bucks, I actually have to earn kind of like $9,000 a month to pay 3K in taxes and 1K in business expenses and 500 for health insurance and 500 for my retirement. And then the rest, that 5K can hit my bank account. And you're like, okay, if I want to do this for like employees, if I want to be able to like pay them, you know, maybe my business has to make 15 to 18K a month, right? And and these can be really big numbers if you have never, ever thought about $10,000 in a month or more. But you're going to think about it because you're going to find yourself in the position of having to think about your business model and say, okay, what type of business, what type of thing might I want to do? that makes $10,000 a month. What type of services might I offer? Products might I sell? Will there be partnerships? How will an employee help me get there, right? Like what are the things that I will do so that my business makes me enough money so that I can accomplish some of these like 
bigger strategic goals because, and I talked to so many people who are in this transition point, which is why I get so hyped about it, <laughs> you know, because when you're not yet making enough money, it can feel really frustrating because you're like, man, I really want savings. I really want to put money into retirement. Um, but my business isn't yet putting me in a place where I can do that. So you really got to be asking this question of like, how does my, what type of business do I want to do that can make me this like stability money? I just want to name, I've never named it this, but I'm going to name it stability money going forward. <laughs> you know, like I don't want you to be paying yourself 15 bucks an hour and not have vacation or sick days. I don't want that, you know, for any of us at all. Right. And so you got to do some of this mental math to start so that you can walk backwards and just say like, all right, what do I want to do? Cause that leads to your other question, which is like, you know, is this thing I'm passionate about that brings me joy and love the thing I'm going to do to make stability money in a business. And then Laura, you had some reflections on that. Yeah. I think that this is really important and I feel like we're also answering this question in a way where I think a lot of people have this question because they, you know, they have this passion that they want to, you know, maybe you have like a a job that you don't like and you have a passion that you do like and you're like, how can I spend more time on this passion and less time on this job? And the answer that a lot of people come up to is saying, well, I need to monetize this passion. And a lot of people worry um, about whether that's going to ruin the passion. And to be honest, I feel like it's what really ruins that passion is if you underpay yourself for it. And that will destroy you. Yes. Yeah. It, it will destroy the passion and it will financially ruin you. So, <laughs> so don't do that. And that's why, and I know that Brenna, your question, you know, it says that you're, you know, you've built this small business over four years while you're working part-time on the side. And now you think you're ready to basically like scale it up, maybe stop working that part-time job and maybe start supporting other people with it as well. So what we've been talking about is we're trying to answer this question for people who maybe are like thinking of starting it and being like, you definitely need to, you know, have a plan where if this is really going to be your business, it has to be able to support you. And I think, Brenna, you're on this brink where potentially it's saying, it sounds like you've been subsidizing this passion business with part-time work. And if you're going to be in a place where you're starting to hire other people, then unless you're doing that strategically because you think it's going to supercharge your business and get you to a point of gaining enough sales that it supports all three of you completely, I would say you know, you really, really need your business to be in a place where it is at least giving you the level of money that Hadassah is talking about before it starts supporting other people. Like, don't let that business support those other people and be a good employer, quote unquote, to those people while you're waiting tables on the totally. side. Like this is, <laughs> this is, no, that is not a like, you know, that is a, a nonprofit model where you are the one person nonprofit. Like that is a road to resentment of whatever it is you were doing that you used to like. Exa exactly. And the thing is, I don't know if that's what you're doing, Brenna. It's hard to tell sometimes from a question and I'm trying to like answer kind of the possibilities, but it's in essence, you know, saying your business is ready to take that next level and scale up. If it is in a place where it is making you not just like, a poverty subsistence wage, 
but it's actually giving you something that is a truly living slash thriving wage. And as far as uh, what to build into that is also thinking about not just does it give me enough of a paycheck, but the answer there is different depending on whether you had to take a big chunk of your savings to invest in that company to start it. So there are some types of businesses where you can start it on almost $0, where it's just like you and a computer you already own in the apartment you already live in and you're doing a thing and it really didn't cost you that much money at all. But then there are other businesses where you might have said, oh, you know, this $10,000 that it took me, you know, like 10 years to save or whatever, I'm going to take that whole thing and invest it in a business involving like having to buy equipment or having to buy raw materials or something to get yourself going. If that was your circumstance, then remember that however, whatever business model you have, it doesn't need to just give you a paycheck then, but it needs to pay back that investment that you made. You need to make sure that you're getting that money back out of the business. Otherwise, risking your everything was definitely not worth it. it. In fact, the business is, you know, you need to make sure that it pays you back and then some. You have to evaluate whether it's worth risking everything it, unless you have a model where not only is it going to become the thing that supports you, it's going to actually pay you those savings back and then help you start generating more savings so that you can eventually hopefully retire. That's exactly it, right? Yeah. And so, you know, these are the types of like, drilled down, getting with the numbers types of things that you want to think about when you're like, what should my business make me? Okay, I, I want it to pay me back a thousand bucks a month for my initial capital investment. And then after that, I want to be able to save a thousand bucks a month, right? So I need to make at least that much after taxes plus everything else that I want, you know? And it's like, I mean, I think another thing is like, part of it is getting right with making money. And part of it is asking yourself this real question of like, is this thing that I'm doing going to be the moneymaker? And it's, it's cool if it is, and it's okay if it's not. And like, to me, one of the like ways that I have been trained to think about business models that has been really helpful for me is to like, is to say like, you know, does this business off offering, whether it's a service, a product, whatever it is, does it serve a need? Is there something out in the world that is telling me that people actually want this? And is it viable for me to serve that need? Right? So like, there's lots of needs in the world. There's, tra there's tragically ever so much, but sometimes people come up with business products that people don't want, you know, you see that in software all the time, you've got to don't do that. And is it viable for me to serve that need? Can I charge enough to the people who have this need that I will be able to earn enough? Or can I charge enough to some people who have this need and maybe not others, right? That's what business models are. You can figure out all different types of products and services to offer such that at the end of the month or the end of the quarter, a three-month period, I've made enough money for this to work for me. And, and that's why, look, if I could go back and do it again, I would be an electrician. People need electricians. You can serve human need on that. Like we interviewed someone at my day job for who's an electrician. She's this like kind of like fantastic human being who is the woman owner of a business. And she got certified as a woman owned business. Um, and so is able to get all these contracts with the city because she's like a minority slash woman owned business and is able to just like 
build out schools. So she's making money, living her life, able to do her thing. And it's also just like doing something useful, right? So, so think really like get creative and start thinking, what is the thing that I'm doing? Is it serving need? And is it viable for me to serve this need? Can I charge enough with this particular offering? You know, and like, look, not everybody's making money off their passion. Don't believe Instagram. No. Oh, God, I'm an accountant. <laughs> like, I, I feel like, and I was saying this to Hadassah before we started, I was like, you know, I worked in the arts for a long time. And I had this, when I was in my very early 20s, I had this vision of like, you know, being a working artist who made my living from art. But to be perfectly frank, I'm not that good of an artist. Like, I, I love it. And I love doing it. And I think that sometimes I make you know, I make fun, hilarious, great things sometimes, you know, as a performance artist and a comedian. But at a certain point, I realized that although I loved it and I was passionate about it, I was definitely not going to make a living off of it. And you know what? I'm an excellent accountant and I make a great living and I'm still an artist. Like I still make art. Like, sure, I don't have as much time to produce art at the same level as other people, but art is still a part of my life. I still call myself an artist because I still am an artist, but it is not how I make money. And, you know, not everything you do or every talent that you have needs to be connected to money unless you want it to be connected to money. And if you separate those two things, it doesn't mean that you can't call yourself that thing. And like, Brenna, something that you said that I thought was really cool was you were like, I want to provide for myself and others in a respectful and healthy way. And so like, now that like Laura and I have like disavowed you of like, you don't have to make money off the thing you love. It can also be really cool to make money off of doing something that you love doing because there can be like, if it's viably monetizable, you know, like, yeah. Be, be, yeah. Because there can be like a really deep, authentic connection in the exchange of getting paid decently for something that you're good at and enjoy doing. Like it, you know, I do not dream of labor, but that might be a dream job <laughs> scenario as we all have to have jobs here under capitalism, right? So it's like, I also want to hold space for the possibility of you building that because there are tons of people out there who are excited about what they do and feel that they contribute well to the world and are paid well for it, you know? And so I want to hold space for that as a possibility that's that's 100% out there. I mean, for me, I've always done ride-free, fearless money, consulting and coaching as a part-time business because it's allowed me to just come at it from a really like authentic place and not have to be like, feel that I had to make any choices because I was cho choices that I wasn't sure if I would ever want to make because I had to make all my money off of it, you know, but that means that I've also become in parallel, like a, you know, really talented and, and like well-paid and, you know, a design strategist. And I really enjoy it. I love having guiding people through the process of, making strategic decisions about what they're going to put into the world or not and why. And so it, and, and I just like, I want to, you know, had I not had to get creative about what I was going to do to have that stability money, it, you know, I, I also at some point was like, Oh, I'm just going to make clothes. I'm going to sew. And then really quickly I was like, man, there is no money <laughs> in like um, in putting together like fabric things under capitalism and except for a certain small segment of people who I don't want to, do the work to go try to be. So, 
you know, it's, you can change, you can make a choice, you can change again, but like this viability question is going to be big for you as you're, as you're moving forward. Mm -hmm. And I think that this is kind of, and it's funny because I feel like we're, when we kind of looked at this email, you know, there are two kind of questions in it that are phrased with question marks, but then this whole section above that we've been answering so far it wasn't phrased as a question, but this was one of the most compelling things that I think everyone that we hear so often, which is, you know, it's difficult to turn the thing I love and I'm passionate about sharing into a thing that has to be commodified in order to survive financially. And I guess, you know, I want to move on to the to the two, you know, question marks in it. But the last thing I wanted to say about that, and I kind of my takeaway of all this is, I think that it is really, it is a very difficult decision to take that passion and that thing that you really love and decide what to do with it. And I think it is very tempting to say, you know, if I can survive off of this, you know, yeah, I don't dream of labor, but if I can survive off of this, I think I'll be happier. But the big caveat is you will not be able to survive off it unless you can truly see that plan and that vision and that viability for it to truly make enough money for you to thrive. Because in looking at your second and, you know, the the two questions you actually have is if you take that plunge and say, I am going to, you know, try to live off of this passion thing, unless it is combined with a truly viable business plan, then you will not be able to own your own home. Because, you know, a lot of people where they're like, in order to, you know, live my passion, I'm going to live like a pauper because that's the kind of 1980s movies about artists in New York kind of vision of what it means to live your passion. If you're going to say, you know, I, I make these tinctures, I make this, I, I'm opening a cafe, I'm doing this, I'm doing that and that's my passion, it truly has to be accompanied by a business plan where you can see that it can re- you can realistically make enough money for you to not just survive, but to thrive. And you need to be ready to charge the prices that you need to charge to do that. And if that is something where you're like, that's shitty and painful for me, and I don't want to do it, then either leaving it as a side hustle or just a non-monetized passion might be better for you. Like, you know, I make this podcast with Hadassah and I'm not going to, we're not monetizing it for ourselves right now because we don't, I mean, it doesn't seem viable and we don't want to do it right now. We're enjoying it and we just want it to be good. You know, I will sometimes teach on the side. I'll tutor, I'll, you know, do a little bit of this or that but I never turned it into the main hustle because the compromises I'd have to make, they don't work for me. So I leave it as a side hustle and I do enough to keep me happy, but I don't turn it into the thing that stresses me. So to move on to the other questions, does that sound good? Or do, was there something that you wanted to say? No, that's right. No, no, no. Like I, yeah, I think in moving on, it's like, because the other side of this is, and this is to me, I'm starting to answer the question of like, 
employment. Are you the employer or are you the employed? Are you employing yourself and others or are you employed by someone else? But I want to go into this question of buying a house as a self-employed person. Here's the thing. When you are employed by someone else, they are providing you a clear amount of money on a regular, predictable cadence. If you want to buy a house, an employer, or sorry, a bank is looking for a specific amount of money on a regular, predictable cadence. They're going to be looking for enough money to say this person can certainly pay this mortgage we think the house is going to cost. In the US, they're looking essentially for your gross pay, all the money before taxes, for the mortgage to be not more than 30% of the gross pay that you get, all that money before taxes. So if you are going to be hiring yourself, self-employed, and want to qualify for a mortgage, you will need to be in a position where you can pay yourself regularly a clear and reliable amount of money, because that is what the bank is going to be looking for. And so I think back to this question of like, yeah, you were like, should I do this for myself? Will the business make me enough money? Like, how will I, how will I transition? And is it possible to work for myself and buy a house? The answer is yes if you are paying yourself regularly, because that's what is going to be investigated, you know? So in the U S like banks are going to want to look at your last three years of taxes. They're going to look at your earnings post business expenses. So they'll look at your gross earnings, everything before taxes are paid, but after your business expenses are paid. So a lot of business owners get a little bit stuck there because we tend to write off a lot of things that we spend to make our businesses happen which makes it look like we earn less money on paper for taxes. And that gets people a little bit stuck because it, it's hard, they don't qualify for as much mortgage and mortgages are getting more and more expensive in the U S and Canada. Right. So. Yeah. You really need to be strategic. This is where, you know, there's, there's the strategic thing of saying, Oh, I want to make sure that I'm writing off the maximum amount of things that I can possibly write off to keep my tax burden low. But that also can make it look like you're making not enough money to get a mortgage. Mm -hmm. So taking a couple steps back, like here's the thing, when you walk into the bank to get a mortgage, how, how do you prove like they are, they want to, you need to have your down payment number one. So your business needs to pay you enough to save enough money to have a down payment. And when you're thinking and planning for that, especially if it's like, Oh, this timeline is not me buying a house today. It's me buying a house in three years or five years. Don't base that savings plan based on today's prices. Take those prices and increase them by a safe margin and plan for that, you know, so that if you're saying, okay, I need $60,000 in three years, how much do I need to be, try to be saving every month or every quarter or every Half year, $1,600 a month, I believe. Exactly. So so this is like when you're trying to save for the down payment. So when you walk in, they want to see that you have a down payment. And then they want to, like Hadassah said, see that you have income coming in to be able to pay the ongoing mortgage. And there's two ways in Canada, at least the two documents that they ask you to provide to prove it is if you're employed by someone else, they'll look at either your in Canada, your T4, which is the, I guess, the equivalent of the W2, like in essence, it's the tax form that your employer provides to you and files with the government saying, I paid this person this much in this year, right? So if you have a single employer, you can just essentially show them a pay stub or a T4 and be like, this is what I made. 
But the other, you know, documentation that you can provide to the bank is, uh, like Hadassah said, you can show them they want to see three years of your tax returns. In Canada, they will want to see at least a year or sometimes multiple years, especially if you're self-employed, they're going to want to see multiple years because they want to see that that income is, like Hadassah said, reproducible and regular. They want to see three years of notice of assessments from the government. And this is also true if you're somebody who has more than one job. So like you're saying, you have self-employment income and you have a part-time work, then you want to show them the notice of assessment because it includes both that sets of income, right? And they want to see that over the course of, you know, several years, you're making enough money. So, you know, if you're if your business has no structure, if it's not a corporation that's paying you out money, if it's just essentially a sole proprietorship where what shows up on your income taxes is your revenues minus your expenses, then they're going to want to see a couple years to know that either, you know, they they either want to see that the amount is stable year over year or they want to see that the amount is increasing. Mm-hmm. They don't want to see massive ups and massive downs. Nope. The more unstable it is, the less money they'll lend you and the more you will have to have of a down payment, right? Because it means the smaller a mortgage you'll qualify for, if at all. So the this is kind of the big the big thing is you really want to be able to show proof of that income and then also have the a sufficient amount of savings for the down payment. And if you're trying to show on that notice of assessment or your US taxes that part of your income stability is from that part-time job. You don't want to have just quit that part-time job. You want to still have that job and be getting like your paychecks from that job, you know? So yeah. So in general, it's like, and this is the other reason to report your income. Yeah. Right? Because now you're like, look, blah, blah, blah. I'm making the money, you know? And so it's in general, it's like, you do not want to be quitting a job in the year before you're trying to get a mortgage, unless you are immediately replacing that job with another W2 job. Otherwise, you've got about a three-year window from when you start self-employment as your only source of income to when you can start to think about qualifying for a mortgage, as long as you're making enough money on it. All right, so we've hit the, we've beat that little dead horse around, but it's it's so important. It's not right, but people get so stuck in it. I just wanted to go deep into that, like qualifying for a mortgage when you work for yourself. But I I think we want to land on this like last part about like if you wanted to employ other people or if you wanted to bring benefits just into your own life as a, as the employer of yourself, (laughs) you know, medical, dental, RRSP slash retirement plans, life insurance, et cetera, high level. I'm going back to the top here. You have to have the money to be able to purchase these benefits and to put into your RRSP or retirement plan. And so that is back to this business model. How's my business making me enough money to be a good employer to myself? and potentially to others, right? Yeah. So if, Brenna, if right now it sounds, you know, you have this part-time job and then you have this business you've been building over four years and maybe your part-time job is where you've been, you know, maybe you've also been keeping that job because it provides you with, you know, health insurance and it provides you with um, these kind of additional benefits. So, you know, you mentioned medical, dental, RSP, pension, life insurance, savings, this sort of thing. When it's as far as you talk about what kind of structures do you need to set up when you're, you know, starting this business, when it's just you, yourself, you and yourself, 
all of those things are essentially just whether or not you can provide them for yourself. You know, you go out and buy a, you know, a personal small medical plan. If you think it's necessary, you set up your own personal RSP and make sure that you're contributing to it. And which in Canada is extra important if you're, you know, got a two to three or five year timeline for buying a home because dumping money into that RSP, remember that you can use your RSPs up to $35,000 of your RSPs as a down payment for your first home. So contributing to that RSP every year, not only diminishes your tax in the current year, but that's part of your saving for your down payment for your home. So you should definitely be doing that. You set it up at your bank yourself. You can buy your own life insurance, all those things. But when it's just you yourself and you're supporting yourself from your own business, remember that you need to ask yourself whether you need all those things because, you know, there's absolutely no requirement for you to do those things for yourself. It's just a matter of whether you want to. If you do want to, then you need to make sure that your business provides you enough money for that. In Canada, because I do, since you said RSP, I you know, believe you're in Canada, medical, dental, life insurance, you know, that whole package, you can decide whether or not you want that extra coverage right now, or you can wait, you can skip it for a little while. In the US, it's obviously much more required since you don't have socialized medicine, but you have to figure out which of these are most important for you to do and invest in them. Now, if you're talking about hiring other people, hiring employees makes you responsible for certain basics according to the law. And when you talk about what structures should you set up as you start a business, there are certain structures that you are legally obliged to set up and you that you have to meet as a bare minimum. And you need to take a look at what that legal bare minimum is. And if you can't afford that bare minimum, then you can't have employees yet. And so not only is that, of course, a minimum wage, but that's also a minimum amount of paid time off, uh, you know, a minimum level of health and safety. And also remember this, in Canada, when you hire employees and you set up payroll, you're not only taking deductions from employees, like, you know, taking income taxes from them and taking a little bit to contribute to EI and CPP. But you have another thing, which is called employer contributions. And that's the invisible extra cost of an employee. So, you know, when you hire somebody, yes, you're taking a bit out of their paycheck to give it to the government, but then the government also asks the employer to kick in a bit more. Mm -hmm. So that you take a portion for employment insurance from the employee. And then as a employer, you also have to pitch in an equal amount there. So, you know, same thing in the US, by the way, exactly. So when you're thinking about whether you can afford an employee, and you know, from a, a perspective of wanting to be not a fucking bullshit boss, and you want to pay people a good wage, remember that whatever salary you set, your employee is going to cost you more than that because you have employer contributions on top of that. So you can, I won't get into the specific percentages, but look up those percentages and do a tiny spreadsheet where you say, okay, if I'm going to pay them X amount of dollars a year, then actually that's going to cost me X amount of dollars plus 5% more for my employer contributions. You need to be able to afford that. And you need to make sure that you're able to afford giving them paid time off. So that's the absolute bare minimum. And then above that, 
as far as what structures to set up, this is where you need to take a minute and reflect on what kind of employer you want to be and what kind of employee culture you want to set up at your business. And you need to decide kind of what sort of things you really want to be able to offer people. And I'm sure that from like a working class perspective, if I became a boss, I'm like, I want to give them everything. I want them to have all of the best, you know, I want it to be a great job for them. But it is much easier to give a a benefit or a form of compensation than it is to have to take it away. So you really need to make sure that you can afford a certain benefit before you promise it to people. Mm-hmm. And in a way, it is best to roll out benefits sort of, unless you have like an F ton of money, which who does? I guess, you know, whatever, venture back startups. I don't know. It's better to roll things out as your business gets stronger and has more income, more revenues, you can roll out better and better benefits to people as they become sustainable for your business to offer. Totally, totally. And like, again, so much of this is back to like, what can the business make feasible, right? And feasibility is all about practical things like the money, you know, and, and one thing I would encourage you to think about is like, if there's a benefit you would want to give to it, someone else who's an employee, how do you make it possible for yourself? I'm thinking about sick days. I'm thinking about paid time off, e.g. vacation and just rest. <laughs> you know, these things are super, super important. And a business model that's sustainable is going to create that for you. And and if you are like, hey, you know what? Again, I don't really want to make that business model. Okay, great. Then work for somebody else and make that their job to make that feasible because plenty of businesses have figured it out and you can too, if you want, if you want. Exactly. And when you're setting up the structures, like really inviting other people into your business and becoming responsible for them as an employer is like, honestly, a big level up from a business perspective. It's where you really are like, I'm taking, I'm making promises to other people and I'm taking responsibility for other people. And I think that if you think about what structures to put in place, there are some that are like, yes, legal basic structures, like, you know, you need to set up, you need to set up a payroll system and, you know, you need to register with the government so that you're remitting your source deductions and your employer contributions, all of that. Those are kind of like the really sort of concrete structures, but there's all also other kinds of structures that you need to think about, like you want to make sure that you have, you know, really clear sort of ideas and policies and plans for not only rolling out benefits, but how you're going to treat people and, you know, processes that they can, you know, talk to you as an employer. And you know what, there's, I really recommend that you get a couple books about, uh, about being an employer. And there's a lot of creative ways to offer benefits in a, in like a, you know, sort of a a beta version and then rolling out something better as you have more employees. Like having a health plan, a company health plan is expensive and you usually have to have a certain number of employees to be able to afford it. But you can start off by uh, offering, you know, when you're able to afford it, offering a reimbursement-based health fund, for example. So in Canada, where we have socialized medicine, really health plans are so that you can cover extras like dental, massage, 
you know, osteo, like glasses, things like that. You can set up a fund where you say, you know, every employee has X amount of dollars every year. You submit a receipt for whatever it is that you did and we will reimburse you. That is kind of a a, a beta version that you can do when you only say have one or two employees. And then when you grow big enough to be able to afford to buy a full out benefit plan from a supplier like, you know, RBC or Blue Cross, you know, you can do that. You know, pen, you mentioned pension plan. Most companies, unless you're massive, a pension plan isn't accessible to you. But pension you, plans are over. Yeah, but you can offer, you can decide to offer an RRSP matching plan for your employees up to a certain maximum of a year. So if you say, you know what, if you put in $500 into your RRSP, I'll give you $500 for your RRSP. That's a great benefit. But this is actually just a lot of visioning. And that's really. You know, it's a rabbit hole, but I think that this is kind of a good place that we can maybe stop. I mean, it's it's so like you're probably like, whoa, details. But look, (laughs) whether you're working for yourself and only ever working for yourself, whether you're working for someone else and trying to think about what is a good life as an employee or whether you're trying to imagine making a good life for somebody else who are your employees and yourself as employed by yourself. I think getting into these weeds is really useful because sometimes we forget that there's these types of things that we could even want or dream of or ask for enough money, somebody to match our retirement, the ability to save enough for a down payment, but those they're out there. Right. And so to me, overall, the challenge here is how do you, which thing do you pick and how do you make it such that it can deliver you those things because it's possible. So you're in a good place, you know, Brenna, because you're asking these bigger questions and you're asking questions about things that are possible. So I think with that, we're going to wrap good people. Um, oh, Lord. oh my God. Thank you so much, Brenna. Thank you so much, Ben. We appreciate Thank you. you so much, Hadassah. Thank you, Laura. This was so lovely. This is the first bottom lines, top dollars where Hadassah is recording from Denver. Indeed. New world, new life. Keep please sending us emails. And even if even if the next listener mail episode is coming out at the end of season three, please send us questions, ideas, and recommendations. And in the meantime, we publish monthly casual video chats of between 30 and 60 minutes on our um, Patreon. So if you miss us in the meantime, you can become a patron and check out our our casual chit chats over there. Totally. We listen to them. We love them. And we appreciate you. And I appreciate you, Laura. So thank you for this, uh, for this chat. The same. Love you. Bye. Love you. Bye. This has been another episode of Bottom Lines, Top Dollars, a podcast made by queer punks and anti-capitalist finance professionals who, like you, don't trust money and therefore are obsessed with understanding it. Your hosts are the ladies who crunch. That's me, Laura Boo. And me, Hadassah Damian from Ride Free Fearless Money. Folks, if you enjoyed the show, please subscribe and review us on whatever podcast app you use. And speaking of money, if you are able, throw us a few bucks at patreon.com slash dollars. Funds from our Patreon will pay for the costs of making and distributing this podcast and, if we grow this project big enough, for the cost of getting help to make this. 
Oh, I love help and I love getting to pay for it. But other free things you can do is support us by following us on social media. We're on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter. Just search for Bottom Lines Top Dollars or Ladies Who Crunch. We also have a website where we publish show notes on our blog at ladieswhocrunch.club. And finally, if you have questions to submit for our end of season listener mail episode or feedback for us, or if you just have your own punk money stories to share, you can email us at bottomlinestopdollars at gmail.com or just find us on one of the social media platforms and message us there. We'd like to thank our listeners and friends who have contributed to the show and especially to our researchers and idea sounding boards, Ariel Federo and Handy Levine. And remember, friends, punk's not dead, but capitalism still sucks. And if what you heard in this podcast sounded familiar, you're not alone. Thanks for listening. 